Well, it is so good to be here with you guys today. I want to say welcome to those of you here at Newburgh and West that braved the weather to come in. And those of you who may be um, a little safer than we are for joining us online, we're so glad that you are with us wherever you are at. We're excited to continue our series walking through the book of Luke today. Today we are in week four and we are going to be in Luke chapter 15. Now, as we come to Luke chapter 15, we see that Jesus is continuing his journey to Jerusalem where he knows that suffering and a cross await him ahead. But Jesus continues to press forward. And as Jesus presses forward, we see him continue to teach his followers both who he was, why he came, what he was about to do and what it means to follow him. So today we see, just like we have the last three weeks, that Jesus continues to do that. Now, if you want, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat back in front of you or under your seat. And and as we do, I want us to think about something that Jesus is continually doing, which is challenging the cultural assumption about who's in and who's out. Who is it that's allowed to be in the respectable crowd? And who is it that that should be just cast off to the side? I don't know what it is, but the journey to to kind of discover who's in and who's out is something that starts when kids are, are really young, right? You see them from the youngest age trying to discover who can and who cannot play with my toys. Who can and cannot be in this little play group that I have. As they get a little bit older, maybe it's about the lunch table or something, who is and who isn't allowed, who's in and who's out. As students continue to grow, it's who's in and who's out for for going on this road trip, who's in and who's out for being in our friend group, who's in and who's out in this program at school, and you could go on and on. And the fact is, is we don't stop that when we leave school, right? Whether we like it or not, it's something that sometimes we don't think about, but that is always there as we go throughout life is that journey to figure out, okay, who's in and who's out? Who am I supposed to be spending my time with and who am I not supposed to be spending time with? Throughout the book of Luke, we see Jesus again and again challenge the religious leaders because of their religious hypocrisy. This religious hypocrisy was something that where they were placing a weight on those around them that they themselves could not carry. And they were doing it in the name of their religion. Jesus had some strong words for them. And there's this one passage in particular that I think is actually kind of funny. It's in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus ultimately comes out and and offers really strong words to these guys. And as it comes to the end of his thing, one of the guys in the audience responds. He's an expert in the law. And here's what he says to Jesus. He says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Like, like, do you not realize that we're right here? But Jesus continued to press forward because he realized that this religious hypocrisy was a major problem for them. Now, when G, whenever Luke wrote the book of Luke, he, he didn't actually put in the chapter numbers and verse numbers, okay? That's something that, that the church did later on, and it's a great tool for us to find where we are in a book. But today, I think we could be in trouble because what we could do is start to jump into Luke chapter 15 without looking at what just happened, You see, because this is one continual story. So what I want us to do really quick is look at what happens at the end of Luke chapter 14. 
At the end of Luke chapter 14, there are great crowds coming to listen to Jesus. And Jesus offers some strong words like, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. There's suffering that comes along with following me. Following me is not always easy. And he finishes up Luke chapter 14. His very last sentence is this. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. And then chapter 15 starts out by telling us this. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to do what? To listen to him. The tax collectors and sinners, after hearing this really strong teaching from Jesus, were pressing in to do exactly what Jesus had asked. Now, really quick, what I want us to do is is meet some of these key characters in our story today. First, we have the tax collectors. Now, as you may have heard before, tax collectors were not very popular. And there's not really a culture where people coming in and taking taxes on behalf of another government is popular, right? I mean, that's how the Boston Tea Party happened. So here you have this opportunity where where these guys are are taking taxes. But we see in the Roman Empire, it was even more challenging. Because the Roman Empire would use these guys that we'd call like tax farmers. And what they would do is they would come in and they would kind of place a bid to collect taxes in a certain geographical area. And if their bid was taken, all they had to do was make sure that they turned in that amount of money. And they could take whatever they wanted on top of that pretty much. Now, these tax farmers would also hire local Palestinians to actually do the tax collecting from house to house. And sometimes they would raise the bar even higher. And these local Palestinians that were collecting taxes were seen as betraying both their race and their religion. So for that reason, they weren't too popular. So we often see that these tax collectors are coupled in with another group, the sinners. So the tax collectors and sinners seemed to go together quite a bit. And the sinners were those who were unclean. They were the lawbreakers. They were those that were morally detestable. And they were basically anyone that the Pharisees decided that that they wanted to condemn. These were people that were clearly outsiders. and, And all the respectable people knew that they were outsiders. But as we see chapters 14 and 15 come together, the interesting picture that we have, again, is that this group of outsiders were approaching Jesus to listen to his every word. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, which is kind of amazing because Jesus was a very righteous and holy man. But the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders is that Jesus was treating these people as if they were what they really were, which was human. As Jesus treated them like human and spoke to them as people who had dignity and gave them even hard challenges and teachings, these people were drawing in to listen to him. Meanwhile, verse 2 goes on to tell us about a couple more characters in our story. It says, And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the um, respectable people in the community. They were the righteous. They were those that everyone else kind of looked up to and knew that they could never quite get to that level of greatness. They they couldn't quite measure up, but but they knew they had to still hold them in high regard. These were the people that that kind of let them know how the law was to be interpreted, how things were were supposed to be done, and they were definitely in the end group. There was no question about it. 
So why were these guys so upset with Jesus, another righteous man, as he was teaching? It was because he was welcoming and eating with these sinners and tax collectors. He was embracing them into friendship, and that made them feel really uncomfortable. As we start today, we can't miss this picture. The tax collectors and sinners doing what Jesus said, approaching and listening, while the religious people are complaining about what Jesus is doing. It's a challenging picture, and I'm challenged by this because it causes me to ask the question, who is drawn to me and who is repelled by me? Who is it in my life that that thinks, oh yeah, I'd like to hang out with Andrew. He's a safe person. Is it the people that are considered outsiders? Is it those who are maybe marginalized by the rest of society, or is it only the respectable people? Now, what I don't want you to hear today is that having people who are respectable in your life is wrong. You should have a lot of those people, but you should never have that group of people in your life at the expense of those who are outsiders and marginalized. That was the issue with these religious leaders in our story today. So how is it that Jesus responds to these these Pharisees and scribes complaining about what he was doing? Well, like Jesus often does, he he goes ahead and he tells them a string of three stories that come together to kind of tell us one message. The first two stories kind of come together to provide a framework to help us understand what we should expect in the third story. Now, the very first story is Jesus telling a story about a man who has a hundred sheep. Jesus asks these these leaders, he kind of says, hey, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away and is lost, which one of you would not leave the 99 to go and rescue the one who was lost? Jesus says such a shepherd would actually continue to hunt until he found him. And here's what he goes on to tell us in verses five and six. He says, when the shepherd has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. The shepherd joyfully carries the sheep back, even though that was going to be hard work. And he invites the community to come in and share in his joy. Why? Because when what is lost is found, that's something to celebrate. It's something to invite others into because we want others to share in our joy too. Jesus wraps up the parable by saying this. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. This story doesn't really require much explanation, I don't think. In this story, if we remember our audience, we've got the scribes and the Pharisees, we've got the tax collectors and sinners, and it's clear that that one lost sheep is the, is the tax collector and sinners, right? And what Jesus is ultimately saying to the religious leaders is, hey, you all should be celebrating that the lost have been found. That's something to celebrate. You should share in my joy instead of complaining. The appropriate response to this isn't complaining, but rejoicing. Because when what is lost has been found, it's something to celebrate. Jesus then moves on to his next story, which is a story about a woman who has 10 coins. Each coin would have been about a day's worth of wage for a common working man. And Jesus says, hey, if this woman has these 10 coins and she loses one of the coins, she's going to light a lamp. She's going to sweep her house and she's going to search diligently for this coin. 
And whenever she ultimately finds this coin, she's going to invite her friends over to join in this celebration with her. She's going to invite others to come and rejoice with her. Why? Because when what is lost is found, it's something to celebrate. And so he says, hey, this woman's going to invite other people into the joy with her. Jesus goes ahead and and sums up this parable by saying this. He says, I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angel over one sinner who repents. Again, in light of this parable, I think it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. The lost coin is like those tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus' message to these religious leaders is stop complaining and start rejoicing with me that what is lost has been found. Now, this leads into Jesus' third parable, which is kind of the climax. And this is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In this parable, what Jesus does is he puts human flesh on what we've just seen. He's given us examples with sheep and he's given us examples with coins. But now he turns those into people to allow us to see what this may look like in our own lives. As we come to this story, we see Jesus set it up by telling us about the three key characters that we have. We have a man and his two sons. Sometimes this parable is called the parable of the prodigal son. But but I think if we do that, we miss the fact that all three of these characters play a major role in what Jesus is trying to communicate So whenever Jesus comes in here, here's what he tells us in this story, starting in verse 12. He says, the younger of them, the younger of of this man's sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now here what we see is this son coming to his father and asking him for his share of the inheritance. An inheritance worked then like it does now. It's something you don't get until your parents' death. But this son comes in and he asks for him. And what we know is that as the younger son, he would have received one third of all the father's wealth. But we also know that this father would have been expected to respond really strongly. Because ultimately what this son was saying to his father was, hey, I would rather just have you dead already. I would rather have your things than you, dad. You're great and all, but but your stuff's a whole lot better. The father would have been expected in this story to then drive the son out of his family with nothing less than physical blows. Now, the fact is, is that 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 may have been true in that culture, but, but it wouldn't be that much different in our culture, right? We would expect such a father to at least write that son out of the will for being so presumptuous to think that he could ask his dad for his inheritance while his dad was still living. That, that's not something that you do. Ultimately, as we look at this story, we don't necessarily see the son breaking a law. <laughs> The fact is is that there's nothing in the Old Testament law that would make us think that it was illegal to make such a request. But here we see, as Kenneth Bailey points out, that the problem that we have in this passage isn't so much that of breaking a law as breaking a relationship. Have you guys ever been there before in a relationship? (laughs) 
Maybe it's a marriage or a relationship between a parent and a child or with a friend or another loved one where maybe it's easy to point to the rule or, or the law that they broke, but the real pain comes in not because there was a law or a rule broken, but because the relationship was broken. That's what we see happening in this story. And the pain of this that the father was experiencing was because of that break. Now, this is something that we see even from the beginning of the story in the Bible about how God has interacted with his people. Back in the garden when Adam and Eve were placed in this perfect place and they were given one rule and law and and they ended up breaking that rule and law, that was bad enough. But we see later on as the the scripture unfolds that God's real heartburn wasn't so much tied up in the, the law, but that in breaking that law, they broke relationship with him. And the pain of a broken relationship is one of the greatest experiences or greatest experiences of pain we can have in this life, right? So how is it that this father responds? Does he drive him out? No. We saw there at the end of that verse that rather than driving the son out, the son or the father decides to distribute his wealth among his sons. Right here, I think we see the very first thing that gives us a picture of our father in heaven's heart for us. And I want us to see this from the very beginning. And it's this. That the Father desires you to know his heart. Even when this son did the unthinkable, the father in the story still desired him to know his heart. And he went ahead and went with the deal, even though he knew that there was pain that came with it. Even though he knew that, that he was going to be hurt in this, the father ultimately shows us something about his character. He shows us something about his character as he patiently endures the loss of honor in a culture where honor was just about everything. And he experiences the utmost pain of rejected love. The reality is, is that the normal thing for us when our love is rejected is to try to make ourselves numb towards the other person. The normal way for people to respond when love is rejected is to convince yourself that you really never loved that person that much anyways. You begin to to ultimately try to harden your heart towards that person so that they they can't hurt you anymore. But here in this story, we see that, that rather than turning to anger, the father in this story bears the agony of rejected love for the sake of showing his son something about his heart. Now, as we move on in the story, we see that the younger son goes ahead, he skips town, he he makes a quick sale of this property that had probably been in his family for generations. And we're told there at the end of verse 13 that he squandered his wealth and foolish living. He squandered his estate, his inheritance. Now, such a, a break in relationship and such a spending of an inheritance could be the, the modern day equivalent of someone going away to the big city, you know, and, and spending their wealth. But I think it's also seen in a lot more normal ways sometimes in our life. Sometimes it's when we turn to the pursuit of possessions and the pursuit of money and wealth at the expense of our relationship with our God in heaven. Sometimes it's seen in the pursuit of money and the break of relationship with loved ones. 
Sometimes it's seen in, in us going on a pursuit in a relationship that we know isn't good for us at the expense of our other relationships in life. Sometimes it's seen in the squandering of the gift of grace upon grace again and again. Now here's what Jesus goes on to tell us in verses 14 through 16. He says, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to, into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Here we see that this famine strikes like an economic downturn. And when there's an economic downturn, even if you see it coming, there's no way to be fully prepared for it. But instead of even being a little bit prepared, this son was completely unprepared, right? He had squandered everything he had, but, but at this point, he's still not willing to give up. You see, he knows that if he returns home, that what awaits for him at home is likely rejection and scolding by his entire community. There's rejection and scolding awaiting him from his older brother. And there may be even rejection and scolding awaiting him from his father. So what's he do? He goes and he does the unthinkable for a Jewish man. He goes and begins working with pigs instead of experiencing the humiliation and the submission of his pride to returning home. But even when he was working with these pigs, he still couldn't provide enough for himself. And he finally reached the, the end of himself. And here's what Jesus tells us in verse 17. He says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And I am here dying of hunger. The son then goes on to prepare a speech because you have to have the perfect speech if you're going to return home after screwing up all that your father had given you, right? So he starts with this speech. He says, okay, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not even worthy to be called your child. So make me like one of your hired men. Now, a hired man would be like a step above being a servant or a slave, but it still wasn't being a full son in the family. The, the son seems to catch on to this fact that he kind of had to go home and get an apprenticeship so he could get a respectable job so that he could begin paying off all this debt that he had incurred so that he could ultimately earn his way back into the family so that he could maybe one day get to the point where he could be called son again. Now let's think back to our setting. Remember, Jesus is talking with these Pharisees and these scribes and the Pharisees and scribes are finally probably thinking, Jesus, you finally put those lost tax collectors and sinners in their place. Hopefully they see now that them just coming to you to listen isn't enough. They've got to get their stuff in line first. They've got to fix things. And these, these, these scribes and the Pharisees are probably feeling pretty good about themselves. But then in verse 20, Jesus goes on to say something that surprises everyone who's listening. He says, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The picture here of the father's heart would have stunned these hearers. No man over the age of 25 would have done such a thing of, of running after someone else. 
Running was something that was reserved for for women and children. If you were a respectable man, you would walk slowly with with your chest puffed out. But the the father instead runs after his son because he's filled with compassion when he sees him. And talking about this idea here, Tim Keller writes this about the father. He says, Jesus shows the father pouncing on his son in love, not only before he has a chance to clean up his life and evidence a change of heart, but even before he can recite his repentance speech. But immediately after this, the son does realize, I've got to at least get these words out, right? So he began saying to his father, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But then the father cuts him off immediately. We see the father interrupt the son and show that his love does not stop with running after his son. He's not done showing his love yet. He goes and he has them ultimately go ahead and and get his servant to go and and do even more. Here's what we're told in verses 22. He tells his servant, quick, bring out the best robe, which would have been the best robe that the father himself had and put it on him. Put a ring, which we think was probably a signet ring, which would have been like he could make decisions for the family. He now had access to the family's possessions. Again, as crazy as that sounds. So he said, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf. And in a culture where you didn't have meat with every meal, having this fattened calf would have been one of their most prized possessions. But he says, bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and it is found. So they began to celebrate. The father interrupts him and we see him ultimately shower his love on him and begin this celebration. And why does he celebrate? Just like we saw earlier, because when what is lost is found, that's something to rejoice in and it's something to invite others in to rejoice with as well. Here, I think we see a second important thing about this father and about our father in heaven's heart. And it's this. The father doesn't just desire for you to know his heart, but the father desires you to experience his heart. Now, like I said earlier, I don't think that that being this younger son is necessarily as dramatic as we see this story all the time. I think a lot of us have probably found ourselves living by the same principles that this younger son was living by, even if our paths didn't look the exact same. You see, the the principle that this younger son was living by was that happiness and fulfillment would come through the journey of self-discovery. If he could go out and free himself from all authority, free himself from all cultural expectations, and if he was just free to go be who he thought he was, if he could go and be true to himself, then he would find fulfillment. Then he would find happiness. But what we see in this story is something that some of us have probably experienced before, and that's that as you go on that journey of self-discovery, often rather than finding fulfillment and happiness, you find yourself crushed because it doesn't fulfill what it promises to do. We see this younger son do something that many of us do, which is seek happiness and fulfillment through self-discovery. But in this story, we see that that this journey towards self-discovery isn't the only way for us to be lost. You see, there's another path to take. 
Rather than self-discovery, we can take the path of moral conformity where we think as long as we measure up morally to the expectations of our culture, as long as we line up morally with whatever else is going on in our world, if we can get all our ducks in a row, we're good. We'll find happiness and fulfillment as long as we can meet the expectations of those around us. As long as we keep all of the rules, we'll be good. But oftentimes, whenever we go on this journey, we find ourselves crushed. Why? Either because we can't measure up or because the relationship we thought we were in isn't as transactional as we thought. This is where we find the older brother reappearing in our story. And here's what we're told in verse 27. As the older brother came in from the field, he heard the music and the dancing. And he asked one of his servants, hey, what is it that's going on? And here's what um, is told to us. It says, your brother is here. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never given me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. The older brother couldn't handle this. You see, he had been conforming to the expectations of his father and the rest of his culture his entire life, but things still didn't work out like he planned. He gives us a little hint about what his experience was like there. As he said, I've been slaving for you for years. This path of moral conformity did not lead to the relationship he thought it would. It wasn't as transactional as he thought it would be. And I think a lot of us have probably found ourselves like this in our relationship with God before too. We say, okay, God, I will do these four things, but I expect you to give me these four things in return. Okay, God, I'll keep up all of these rules that you want me to, but in the meantime, I better expect to be pretty healthy. And whenever those things don't happen, the crushing weight of not having this relationship work out like we thought it should can be crushing. This older brother was having a hard time grasping what was going on. Here we see that even though he spent his entire life not necessarily breaking any of the laws, he had experienced the break in his relationship with his father as he turned it into something that was purely transactional. As it was just something where he would do something and he would get something else in return. Just like the religious leaders, we see him outraged at the sight of his father welcoming in his brother. Just like we see with the, the Pharisees and scribes when Jesus was eating with these tax collectors and sinners. Now, as we come to this, I I think it's enlightening to see what Kenneth Bailey says about the grace that was shown here. He says, for certain types of people, grace is not only amazing, it is also infuriating. Now, that might sound a little bit confusing. (laughs) That might seem a little bit out there. But if I'm honest, I've been there before. (laughs) I've been the type of person that didn't just find the grace of God amazing, but I found it infuriating. 
I remember a time when I was actually, I think in like eighth or ninth grade and, and uh, I was at this youth group and I was one of the leaders there. And, and one of my good friends there, she invited this new boyfriend to come with her. And this guy was not church material, all right? He didn't measure up to my expectations. And so what I decided to do was that my role as one of the leaders in the youth group was to let this guy know that he didn't measure up. So the two or three weeks that he came, I was as big a jerk as I could be to make sure he knew he wasn't really welcome. (laughs) Good news, guys. After two or three weeks, he left and didn't come back. And they broke up. So I did my job. Aren't you guys proud of me? Now, a couple of years later, when I was a senior in high school, this guy became one of my best friends. <laughs> I started hanging out with him, found out that, man, this guy is great. I love hanging out with him. So what did I do? I started beginning to do the reverse, which was try to get him to come to church with me, try to get him to ultimately experience the joy of what was going on with me. And he kept making excuses, kept making excuses. And as I thought about this story this week, I, I remembered something that, that I had forgotten when I first thought about it. And it was the day th- that he kind of told me why. Finally, one day I got him to the church building and we got out and we got in the parking lot right outside of his Honda Civic and we got right next to it. And I, I was like, all right, man, you ready? And he goes, I, I can't go in there. And I was like, why not, man? We're, we're right here. We, we've made it. He goes, because Bondo, which is what a lot of people call me, because I'm afraid that if I go in there, people are going to treat me the way that you did a few years ago. I don't want to risk that again. Now, church, that breaks my heart because as I remember back to that time, I recognize that I don't know that, that Nate ever actually came to church again. He definitely didn't come with me and I I don't know what happened with him. And it was all because when I was younger, I thought I understood this grace that God had shown me. I thought I had that down. I thought I had grasped that. But instead, whenever I saw that that grace could possibly go to someone else, that grace infuriated me instead of leaving me in awe. As we look at the end of this story, we again see the father's heart who again put himself in a dangerous place as he ran out of this celebration and again took on that dishonor. And here's what he says to the older brother. He says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's something worth celebrating. That's something that we should spend our time embracing. And we see something else about the father in this story that shows us something else about our father in heaven. And it's this, that the father desires you to share his heart. The father desires you to share his heart and how you see those who are outsiders. The father desires you to share his heart and how you serve those who are outsiders. The Father desires you to share his heart and how you love those who are outsiders and how you pursue those who are seen as too far gone. Because that's the same way that our Father has loved us in sending Jesus. The Father doesn't just desire us to know his heart and to experience his heart, but the Father desires us to share his heart for the world. 
It's a challenging message we see today. Now, as we wrap things up, I'm gonna ask you guys to do something that's a little different. I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. You see, too often what we do is we come into this room maybe to hear a sermon or we hear something even elsewhere, but we don't slow down long enough to let it actually sink in and think about what it means for us. So for a minute, what I want us to do is just think about the way that we see the Father's heart for us in this story. If you're here, what I want you to know is regardless of who you are or where you're at, whether it's your first time here or you've been here forever, the Father is shamelessly running after you. He is for you. Now, if you're here today or you're at our West Campus, you're joining us online, and you're someone who just feels like you are too far gone. You feel like there's just no way you could be welcomed in. I want you to see the Father's heart running after you, embracing you and desiring you to experience his heart. If that's you, I want to invite you just to stay where you are after service. We'd love to talk with you, have one of our care team members or or pastors talk with you about what that looks like. Or maybe you're here and you've been here, but you've been trying to live up to a certain expectation and it's just not fulfilling anymore. I want you to see that God's heart is for you and he desires you to feel freedom and experience a real relationship with him. God is for you. Now, as we look at this story, the thing I don't want us to hear is that if you've grown up as a Christian, you're automatically the older brother, right? But what I do want to admit is that I consider myself a gospel-believing Christian, but way too often, I'm really elder brother-ish, even if I'm not fully elder brother. So what I wanna pray today is for God to help shape our hearts to be like his heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. We thank you for the picture of your heart and seeing this father who pursued both of his sons who had a broken relationship with him. God, we desire to share your heart, to see the world that you, the way you see it. God, we desire to experience your heart and to dive deeper into your love for us. God, help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.